The following talk was given by Jeffrey Sugan Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. In Fusatsu, we bring our attention to the moral teachings of Buddha Dharma, renew our vows, renew our commitments, which is to basically a commitment to bring everything into harmony, into alignment. We can be so burdened by things of the past, even though they are of the past, we carry them with us. And so the importance of understanding and studying karma, actions, intention, consequences, how we go about creating our own experience of the world, how we bring influence onto others. This next uh, slogan that we're studying is keep the three inseparable, thoughts, speech, and actions. The slogan is saying that they should never be apart from practice. We should never forget how powerful we are because of those three wheels of action. And that when we establish an intention, when we make a commitment, when we make a vow, <clears throat> that's, although it may be an idea in our mind, if it's true, it's not just an idea, it's not abstract, it's really bringing those three forces, if you will, into alignment, that's the commitment, to unify them, and to unify them within the Dharma. Again, they're not unified in some abstract way, but they're brought into alignment with the Dharma with the way things are, with how things actually work. And so that we can manifest that commitment, our vows, in that way, in a way that is unified, that is in alignment, that is in accord, that is peaceful. And part of the upaya of making commitments in our practice is that when we do that and when it's heartfelt, that it's not so easy to get lost, to wander away, to get lost in our indulgences, to forget. We remember. That's the purpose, part of the purpose of these commitments. And when we have made those commitments in a heartfelt way, when we don't act in accord with them, if we're paying attention, there will be some pain. Going against ourselves. That we'll notice that we're acting in a way that's contrary. And that more and more it becomes easier and easier to stay, to stay there. Judy Leaf said it's easy to think of these practices as just a mental exercise. 
mind training, but these practices are really engaging the whole, our whole being, our body, speech, mind, breath, heart, everything. The idea is to act so thoroughly and completely in permeating our, ourselves with this mind training that they're no longer separate. And that's really true of all practice. In the beginning, it is separate. It's a teaching, it's something we're hearing, we're learning, we're being introduced to, we're reflecting on, we're trying to practice. With it more and more, it becomes you. And she says, when we practice wholeheartedly, it shows, it shows up within us. She says, within our body, how we are, how we speak, how we think, how we act. And that's a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. It's a, it's a powerful example. It's a kind of a teacher. We call, speak of body teaching as a teaching, a way of teaching in which there are no words spoken. There's just doing something. And then when we see somebody doing something in that way, we experience it in a different way. We see something. The monks, monastic study, we were talking about the precepts this week, and now the precepts can, um, actually drawing from a dictionary of Buddhism, that they can be seen as um, uh, a list of rules, something that comes from the outside. They're the Bodhisattva precepts. They've been passed down generation after generation. The author said, although they can appear as external prescriptions, and are often couched in negative terms. Don't do this, don't do this. Their purpose, he says, the proper thrust of Buddhist morality is the natural and positive embodiment of right speech, right action, right livelihood, of the Eightfold Path, is the natural and positive, that is affirming, embodiment all throughout. So he says, the precepts are therefore not to be seen as ends in themselves, but rather as essential steps, practices. But as the more, they, more and more they become integrated, become more naturally embodied, then in a sense they are ends in themselves. They are the thing itself because they're integrated with everything else. So then the next slogan sort of naturally goes on from this, train without bias in all areas. It's crucial to do this pervasively and wholeheartedly. Then Judy says the previous slogan was about including all aspects of ourselves in our practice, our body, speech, and mind. And this one expands on that to include all aspects of our experience. And this has been pointed to again and again in these teachings. It runs all the way through Buddhist practice. It's particularly strong and particularly well articulated in the Zen tradition. And not only articulated, but that the practices we do are very clearly about that. The way they're formalized, the way they're integrated with liturgy, the way they're so consciously taken up. So that we are practicing from within our meditation, but when we get off the cushion, just moving into our day, in a sense, every morning here is a gradual entry into more and more a wider 
field, from kinhin to liturgy to orioki to caretaking and so on, is just moving further and further into the full activity of our lives while some of the, the restraints are lightened. So for instance, we move forward into lifting the silence. Pema says, include everything and everyone as you, that you meet as part of your practice. So what does that mean? How do we do that? What does it mean for something to be practice? It might seem like a, an obvious question, which is why we should ask it. <laughs> Sometimes the questions that seem so obvious, we don't really engage, we don't inquire. So what does it mean for something to be practice? Well, to understand that the thing that we're practicing, a moment, an awareness, the person, an object, a situation, that we don't think that it needs to contain some special quality in order for it to qualify as practice. Train without bias. It's the mind that transforms something into practice. The person, the object, the situation is always just whatever it is whether it's happening within a Dharma context or not, whether it's in alignment with the precepts or not, whether the person who's acting in front of us cares about our practice or not. What this, what this phrase is, is saying is, it's not that that doesn't matter in the sense that, that there is something that's happening, there is a context, but it doesn't matter in the sense that for one who practices it, practice takes place in the mind. It's not determined or limited in any way by what is happening in front of us. And so if there's no mindfulness, if we're not actually even aware of what's going on, if we bring bias, our projections, our expectations, our opinions, our denial, our grasping, if we perceive it as permanent, if we perceive it as having its own power, if we believe that it can make me happy, if we can believe that it can make me sad, then in those states of mind, it will be very difficult to practice. Trailer Kyalgran says, train in all areas without partiality. Think of all the different teachings. The great way is not difficult, just avoid preferences. When love and hate are absent, make the slightest distinction. Heaven and earth are separated. Don't set up what you like against what you dislike over and over again. And we need to hear that over and over again. We need to hear it in so many different ways. Because our bias towards bias is so strong. Our preference towards preferences is so deep. All dharmas have one nature. That nature is free of any intrinsic characteristic that we could reject or we could grasp that we could love or could hate. And that basic nature, one flavor, arises in 10,000 forms. And so to meet things without partiality is to meet them, is to be of the same nature, in a sense to be of the same mind, as the mind of all things. Trelig says, integrate equanimity, impartiality, with loving kindness. 
This is important. So that that impartiality isn't mistaken or lead to a kind of passivity or not caring, being aloof, being distant. And so he says, integrate it with loving kindness. So that helps us to extend, in a sense, to bring that impartiality forward, to make it active. Right? That even as we're trying to address something or change something or bring about, affect some change, to do that without clinging to our biases or to having biases. And so in that way, when we really think about this, to me, I hope to some of you, it's, it becomes clear why our Beyond Fear work is so, not only so important, but so thoroughly Dharma. Because the attachment to the self is just a bias. All attachments are just not being impartial. And so when we train in entering into very deep, very old, very conditioned messages and beliefs and views and structures and systems that falsely focus, bring attention to, solidify characteristics within a living thing, a dynamic, whole, integrated thing, like a person, based on the color of their skin, their gender, their sexual orientation, their age, any appearance, their faith, whatever. Because of our, our preference for preferences, we have created these biases based on such a wide range of characteristics, none of which have any intrinsic value, none have intrinsic meaning, none are a person. And so to see and to hear and to perceive and to speak, to act without bias, and to, be, to practice this, to train without bias, means we have to be very, become very aware of how all the many ways that arises within us, towards ourselves, towards others, on the basis of anything that becomes a grasping attachment. And then to meet that, that preference without bias. Because otherwise we just continue to perpetuate. So to meet hatred without hatred. To meet bias with impartiality and loving kindness, which sometimes can be extremely challenging. The impartiality kind of cools, calms that biased impulse, which can be so impulsive. And the loving kindness brings forth genuine caring. The desire to see and meet, but not to, not to destroy. Being without bias means that, in essence, there are no excuses. You do not declare, I think this is Judy Leaf, you do not declare any areas or persons off limits but relate to our lives as a single whole. She speaks of a kind of rhythm, a movement between sitting and off the cushion practice. And then we keep coming back to the cushion, into that silence and stillness, and then we go forth, and then we come back again, and then we go forth, and then we come back again, and then we go forth, and we need to keep doing that. 
day after day, month after month, year after year, because that chasm can seem so, so deep. And then always meditate on whatever provokes resentment. So in training without bias, we will encounter bias, which will means we will encounter strong emotions. We will encounter resentment. Judy says, cultivating loving kindness sounds so sweet and wholesome. How nice. <laughs> when you look at the ads and spiritual publications, you always see smiling faces, promises about how to achieve happiness and be more loving and kind. But how many times do you see the word resentment? A trap of spiritual practice is the avoidance of negativity, the temptation to pretend to be good. But the most fertile ground for these practices is the boundary where a veneer of virtue begins to break down. Rather than always trying to be good, it is better to go directly to what sets us off. Rather than always trying to be good, we should just try and be true which means just true to what's actually happening. That doesn't mean to indulge it. It doesn't mean to, you know, cater to it. It doesn't mean to get lost. It means to actually see it clearly. As I've been saying all along, that's sort of a central tenet of Buddha Dharma practice. If we don't understand that, if we don't really have faith in that, then, I mean, just think about it. There's just whole sections of ourselves and the day and our lives that we just can't, they're kind of off limits. We can't practice them. There's the idea of a Dharma practice, of a Dharma person, of wisdom and compassion, and then there's the reality that we actually meet when we're practicing. And when, when our idea meets the reality, we should let the, the idea drop away, defer to reality. Go that way. And because dukkha is old, because it can be painful in a hundred different ways, and because we've lived within it and with it and with it in others, we adapt to it. We've accommodated ourselves. The self that we're studying is that, that which has accommodated itself. <coughs> To preferences and biases and attachments and so on. And so naturally when we meet those strong accommodations, we call them habits, they will be strong. In a sense, we have made them strong. You know, it's a good thing to think about when we encounter a tendency, an inclination that is so strong, you think, why is it so strong? To say, I, I made it strong, that's why. I did this to me. Damachodra <laughs> mm. says, do these practices whenever you feel resentment. Do it with small things all the time. Then you'll be prepared to work with the big things when they arise. And this is very good advice. To practice what is small, small meaning, relatively speaking, not too big, <laughs> right? And those are the kinds of things that happen all the time. The big things, the really significant things happen, but usually less frequently. The small things happen all the time. They're the things that we have so accommodated ourselves 
to and adapted to because they're so frequent, because they're small, we can kind of just keep going. You know, they don't stop us. They don't blow up the day. They don't blow up our lives. They just, you know, they're just the, all the minor irritations and annoyances and impatiences and, you know, things about ourselves, people, situations that we don't particularly like that we may have resentment for. We wish it was a different way. We wish it wasn't like this. And so she's saying, practice with those things. You know, recognize those as dukkha. Recognize those as holding us back, making our lives somewhat smaller, more constrained. Practicing the precepts means seeing clearly the moments when our actions and thoughts and speech are either following these vows, these commitments that we've made, or not. And so that's why they bring our attention to those things that in some instances we have the strongest habits over because we've repeated them over and over. And other things we may have never done in the traditional sense, like taking a human life, although there are many practitioners who have, but that when those kinds of actions are committed, the karma of those are so, so significant that they change not just one life, but many lives. And so taking life or stealing or speaking falsely, misusing sexuality, clouding the mind, speaking of others' errors and faults, elevating self, giving out, giving ourselves away to anger, being stingy, turning against the three treasures. And the precepts are showing us how those actions, the energy, the mind, the intention, the, the uh, thoughts, words, and actions that we bring into those particular actions, which create so much, so many problems, that they can just be turned. They can just be turned. It's not like, you know, we're in a room where everything is bad and we have to get out of the room and go into the room where everything is good. It's all in one room. It's all in one house. And so we invoke the names of the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas who have given us the examples in their living lives or through their holding, rep representing those enlightened qualities. We bring forth the four vows. We atone. We're, this is how we renew our commitments. This is how we live our commitments. Each of those aspects is really important. That's how great mountains are realized as sacred. That's how they are ascended. That's how we enter into them. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.